Uh, welcome to the Safety Third Podcast. Uh, we've got a special episode today uh, with a special guest, Rasmus Festersen, uh, joining us from Denmark. And we're going to be talking today or hoping to talk today, not only about his very interesting background uh, and the way uh, professional sports have now ended up with uh, him working in robotics. So I think that's kind of a curious path, which will be very interesting. Uh, but then also we'll be talking about how to foster innovation within an organization or an institution, um, specifically from the perspective of the city of Udense, Denmark. Um, and so we'll hear some perspectives on that. They've grown just quite a, a very special innovation center there. And I think we'll have some interesting discussions around that. Uh, my co-host today is Garrett Helmick, uh, who uh, does not speak Danish. He does speak German. But unfortunately, yep. German and Danish do not really, they're not very close. Would you say, Garrett? Uh, when it's written, I think maybe that's easier. Um, but spoken is definitely harder to to get along with because it's just not how you're used to hearing different words. But I tested that on Rasmus when we had dinner. I like tried to read some of the menu to him and tell him what I thought yeah, it meant. You did a really, really good job trying, for sure. <laughs> I like that. You did a good job trying. <laughs> yeah, you always try. Very encouraging. Well, welcome, Rasmus. Um, it's good to have you here. Yeah, thanks a lot, Eric, and I'm glad to be here. That's good. So um, maybe we should take a minute and just talk a little bit about uh, who you are and, and where you're from. Um, give the, the people listening kind of an understanding of, uh, of what your perspective is on things. So I guess, where, uh, where were you born? Where did you grow up? I grew up in the middle of the of uh, the peninsula called Jutland in Denmark, which is quite of an urban area, uh, not an urban area, and a rural area. I'm mm. born really, really close to a, a forest, and there is like five kilometers or three miles to the nearest uh, uh, house. So I'm a I'm a farmer boy, uh, okay. and I grew up mm. there, and also uh, had my childhood there, and then I moved to uh, to Copenhagen uh, to study. And that was where I ended up, of course, in, in this path. But that's also where I ended up playing uh, soccer or football, as you mentioned there. Mm-hmm. And then I ended up in uh, in the city of, of Odense, where I'm at the moment. Yeah. So so I have, I have to ask. So when you say that you're a farm boy, were you on an actual farm? Like, did you have animals and that sort of thing? Yeah, we had all kind of animals. Uh, not for, for industry purpose, but just for fun. We had... Uh, like dogs, cats, even a hedgehog and a donkey. We also had we had sheep, goats, uh, all kinds of different animals just just for fun. Uh, so we had the the space for it. So that was why. Wow! I see. I I would not have guessed. You seem like such a refined person. I wouldn't. I would not have guessed that you grew up with goats and sheep and a donkey. Uh, you know, I I have I have goats myself. Did you know this? I didn't. I didn't know that. But goats are quite nice actually yeah what 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 i i i totally agree what do you what what's nice about goats actually opinion? this is another story my my father he is uh actually the inventor of a very popular butter in denmark also making cheeses uh and the inventor of, of many famous danish cheeses that now you know and goat milk what? is quite popular also for making uh cheeses yeah so and I like that a lot. Also, the feta, uh, you're uh-huh. aware of the, the Greek cheese, very, very good with sheep and goat milk as well. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. So you, you like goats for, for the culinary purposes, the, the cheeses and the, 
and, and that sort of thing. Uh, but I, I thought perhaps you were th- talking about that you liked goats because of their personalities. <laughs> uh, I, I don't think I don't think the personality of a goat would reflect what kind of personality I like. But but uh, but even though very very diplomatic answer. I, no. So we we keep goats as pets for mostly to keep my younger sons busy. You have to keep you have to keep young boys busy, especially. You can't let them be idle, right? So we have some small goats that we keep, and they have the strangest personalities. You know, it, it's really hard to predict what they're going to do. They just, they, they, they're, but it's entertaining. You don't need the nature channel. You just kind of watch the backyard, see the goats. So that's good to hear. Okay. Uh, so you grew up uh, in amidst uh, the rural agricultural life with lots of uh, animal husbandry and those sort of things going on. Your, your family, it seems, uh, uh, has experience with cheeses and all sorts of stuff like that. And then you move to the big city of Copenhagen, right? And, and how big, how, I, I don't know if everybody knows, how big is Copenhagen? What's the population? Yeah, Copenhagen is the, the capital of Denmark and there's approximately 1 million people in the city, maybe a bit more with the, with the suburbs, uh, but it's size like that. Yeah, so very, very cosmopolitan area, of course. And you went there for school? Yeah, I actually went there for for playing soccer in the beginning, uh, but then also the university was Copenhagen, so I also started out studying in the university same time where, while I was playing. So uh, I did both. So when you say while you were playing, were you with like a uh, a league or with a club team, or with or was this a professional playing that you were doing then at the time? I had never been playing professional during high school and in my in my childhood. Uh, I got my first contract when I was twenty, and after high school, uh, I I went six months traveling around the world. And when I came back, I was offered a trial uh, in a in a club in the best league in Denmark, and it it did quite I did quite good. So they offered me a full time contract. It didn't go uh, that good. So after six months, my contract was cancelled. And uh, I moved to Copenhagen and played for a club in the third league in Denmark, the third uh, tier. Uh, it was only half time, so I had the time to to study as well. And then the club I played for, they improved uh, and eventually they promoted all the way to the best league in Denmark. And that is why or how I got got my way into the the best league in in Denmark for full time professional purpose. Wow. Okay. So I, I think there's a lot that you just said in there that we that I need to understand right more. So I think the first thing is you just, so after high school or what have you, you traveled the world for six months uh, and went around kind of, we, we would call that like a gap year, I guess, Garrett, is that right? Would you say? Uh, yeah. I mean, yeah. Yeah. Maybe or, or back. A lot of Americans will go backpacking. They call it. So it, yeah, I made uh, a lot of Americans as well. So I also spent eight weeks in, in us. So but also oh, in, in Australia and the Pacifics, a lot of Americans there, also backpacking like me. Yeah, well, that's. Uh, I'm not going to ask you whether you liked America or not when you were when you were there. <laughs> they were they were quite nice. I made some good friends from that also, and that I'm still in yeah. contact with. So that's they good. were not that bad. No, that's <laughs> that's what America strives for to just be not that bad. So that's okay. <laughs> Uh, I would, I would ask, okay, so then you, you started playing professionally and you, you described the different leagues. I think, uh, American professional sports is a little bit different with that, right? Because we have, 
for instance, in baseball, we have the minor leagues and the major leagues, but the, the people will move up and down, but the teams never do, of course, right? So you just described a process that I think is unfamiliar to a lot of, you have, you guys have relegation over there, you have all these other things, right? So it sounds like you were with a, a team at the top tier, right? Is that what you said? Yeah, I started out in, like you guys, you have the franchise leagues where there are no, there are no promotion or relegation. You just have a team and then the people move around. It's a little different in, in Europe in general. Then you have a team and a, a team from the third best league or the third tier can easily promote all the way up to the best league. You can even do from the 37th best league and do it all the way to the Super League if you just have the good enough players for it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that what I did was from this the second division, uh, what's it called, and then I made it all the way because the team promoted all the way, mm-hmm. uh, all the way through. And I was on that journey as well. So I ended up in the best league by a little bit by a coincidence, but also because the team I played for did good. Yeah, sounds like by by hard work. How long did that process take to go from the third best to the best league? They actually did it in only five years, uh, but there was wow. also a massive investment when I arrived, not because of my salary, but, but just by a coincidence, <laughs> uh, an investor put a lot of money into the club for with the, the goal to to promote all the way to the Super League, to become a Super League, the best league club within within five years or within six years, but we made it in five. Oh, wow. So you, so <clears throat> that actually ties uh, ties in quite nicely with what we're talking about today about innovation and change within an organization, right? Because you just described, I didn't, I didn't realize this was going to happen, but you just described someone tried to set up the conditions for rapid acceleration and growth in the performance of the team. Right. Yeah. And there is actually a morale to that story as well, because the investor, he put of course a lot of money into the, into the football club, but he didn't make it sustainable. Uh, Mm -hmm. And also when he, when he pulled out, uh, the club actually went bankruptcy afterwards. So that's also a way of not building uh, uh, growth uh, that you need to be sustainable also, especially going for startups, but also for football clubs, of course, that you cannot be dependent on one single investor because uh, if that investor choose to do other stuff someday, then you're screwed. And that was actually what happened because he hadn't made it uh, sustainable. And even in the in the period of time that I was there, there was no like investment in the youth, uh, in the in mm. the in the people, uh, and just bought players from from different uh, other clubs to play for the club, and didn't really invest into the sustainability of of a business. And and when he was not there anymore, it, the club went bankrupt, and uh, they relegated all the way to the eighth best tier in Denmark because that's what happens when you go bankrupt. Oh wow. Okay, so you just so you highlighted the moral of the story is you can either innovate for rapid growth in kind of what we would call a pump and dump kind of uh, approach, right? Where you're just trying to get a lot of publicity, a lot of uh, a lot of fanfare early on. You're trying to get early, quick success, uh, but you don't really have a long term vision for permanent sustainable change in things yes you can Um, easily create success with money um, Mm. but you cannot create sustainable success with only money right Mm. right right yeah definitely and then i think that ties in with our the second thing you said that ties in with safety systems as well uh since we are safety podcast i guess right uh 
is you mentioned that you were didn't have any redundancy in the architecture, right? You had just one investor who was, if things went well with this person, then the success could continue. But if that person decides to invest in something else and leaves, you lose that channel, then you, you the system fails, right? Yes. Um, so it's an interesting perspective on even tying it to redundant architectures for safety systems. Those apply to business as well, right? Mm, totally agree. Okay. All right. So you played, uh, you played professional football, uh, for how long? Uh, played 13 years, uh, as professional all together. Um, I also had a, a career ending gap year again in, in my mid twenties where I traveled the world again with my wife. <laughs> so I had a break there in the middle, but 13 years all together. Wow. 13 years. I mean, for, for people in the US, 13 years is an extremely long professional athletics career. Is that would would you say that that's the case for you as well, or is that more normal? I think my, mine is probably a little shorter than than other soccer players in in uh, in Denmark or in Europe in general, because you get your first contract when you're 15, and then that's oh. when you're allowed to get your first contract, and then you usually end your career in your mid 30s. So it can be even more than that, and. Uh, I started a little later and and also yeah had a had a gap year in the middle so it's a bit shorter than than usual of course you if you if you're that good that you can play professional for that long you need you need to be that of course but if you are then then a career can easily be 20 years of of, yeah. uh, of professional uh, soccer wow okay so I didn't realize that so there so you said at 15 so these are like professional development teams that these uh young men or women are placed on to develop as players to feed the bigger teams later is that kind of the approach yeah, the, the bigger clubs have youth teams uh, and if you play on a youth team you also you can be on a contract as well and then you every time you turn uh, one more year you go up to the next youth team and the next youth team, and then the end you'll end up in the senior team if you're good yeah. enough for that of course there are many players that are not good enough for that and then yeah then they have to find another thing to do after their youth football but some some people can go all the way sure if they are they're good enough and lucky enough. It sounds similar to the club system that we have in the U.S. for baseball and soccer and other things with one important difference. I think the club system in the U.S., you have to pay to play in these leagues <laughs> rather than getting paid to do them. So that's kind of a big difference there. Okay, so you played for 13 years. You took a break with uh, your wife to travel the world again. I see a lot of traveling happening. So that's kind of a that's an interesting thing. Um, and then also you said you were going to school at the time, uh, while you were pursuing your athletic career, right? What, yeah. what was school, what was school like for you? It, it was, it was really nice. And you have a lot of spare time when you're playing as professional. We were usually practicing once a day, but only for a few hours. And then you actually have the rest of the day where you can do where we want. And mm -hmm. I, I choose to, to study, uh, that time and it also helped me a lot when when there were injuries so we lost games that there were another thing to to take my focus uh, that i can give my focus on mm. uh, something else than than football and in my case it was uh, it was university but it could easily be be other things as well uh, and also to talk to people that are not into sports at all i like that a lot going to university even though we lost uh, like a big loss in the weekend and and just go to school uh, the day after nobody gave anything about it and we could just talk about random stuff and nobody knew that that was quite nice uh, actually and i like that a lot as a therapy of of uh, 
of, mm-hmm. of yeah, uh, just generating myself after after losses. Yeah, it sounds like a well. Number one, I mean, the stereotype of footballers is not that they go to school in their spare time. That I don't know how true that is, right? You know, but the stereotype is that they're living. They're just living living it up as much as they can, you know, during the during the time. So I think it says a, a lot about you that you pursued that. Um, yeah, and I think there have been a huge culture uh, culture difference and gap between when I started playing in in two thousand and seven, and when I ended. Because in the beginning, I was the only one studying in two thousand seven, mm-hmm. and the people that I played with, I go, why the fuck are you doing that? Why why is it that you 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 choose to do that? And also the coaches were like, nah. Don't focus on that. Please focus on playing. And when I ended my career in 2019, it was I think it was more than half of the squad of the players there were actually studying at the moment. So there have been a, a huge cultural uh, yeah, improvement in, in the way of thinking what you can actually do when you're mm-hmm. playing. And you're not, bec- you're not becoming a, a, a less skilled football player by, by spending a few hours a day and studying. Uh, not at all, and I think some people know that now, but didn't knew that uh, like fifteen years ago. Yeah, I think so. I was, <clears throat> I was looking at your Wikipedia page, and I have, I have to, admit, <laughs> I have to admit, and there's a quote on there on the Wikipedia page that that says something along those lines that you have, and I don't, I don't know. Maybe I'll try to pull it up, or Garrett, maybe you can take a look at it. But it <laughs> says something along the lines of. You know, I, I'm not just legs or something like that. I'm, uh, I'm I'm not just here for kicking the ball. I'm also using my brain or something like that. I think so. I thought yes. I thought that was a pretty interesting perspective to have. Yeah, and also there's also a, a career after your first career when you're playing. Uh, you usually mm-hmm. end up in your mid 30s, and and what do you need to do after that? There's still like 40 years of employment left. So if you prepare yourself a little bit, then you then you're a bit better to to get a a good job and also a job that you like and uh, and maybe a job that you will uh, ben- benefit from if you just prepared yourself a little bit instead of just ending your career and yeah yeah what to do now i don't know i don't know what to do so then you'll probably end up in in a job where you're not that happy and there's also statistics like i think it's two out of five football players after they're ending of career getting a depression and i think that's mm-hmm. one of the reasons why because it's it's an emptiness of of what yeah. to do and uh, there are still 40 years to go on on the to to be an employer or to to work in in your second career after you ended your first career in a, as a football player so that is a quite important uh, quote to to uh, to get along as well yeah it's important to have that i mean I, I, you reminded me i when i joined the i joined the marine corps at 17 and i remember they at that time you could do 20 years and then you would get a retirement which was basically half of your pay for the rest of your life and at 17, I thought, wow, 20 years is a long time. But when I'm 37, I'll be old and I'll be, I'll just do nothing for the rest of my life. I, get, I think that's what I thought. But, you know, now I'm 42 and I'm like 37. That's like just when your career's getting started, I feel like, like you have so, like I couldn't imagine doing nothing for the rest of my life. I mean, I'm not in a position where I could do that, but, but, I, yeah. but I couldn't imagine it. So, but if you, but there were a lot of guys who get out of that type of environment. It sounds like they have the same problem that the footballers do that this thing that was all of your life now is gone and you don't really, you don't really have anything to fill it. So it's really interesting. Garrett, did you find a quote or no? I did. 
It says, if I may quote you, Rasmus, <clears throat> says, I choose to study because I believe that you can use your mind for education and your legs playing soccer. Combining the two helps me stimulate my intellectual side as well as my physical needs, which eventually makes me become a better human being. Yeah. Interesting quote, huh? Yeah, it is interesting. We're doing a fact <laughs> We're doing a fact check on Wikipedia right now, actually. So, you know, did they, is that a correct capturing of your quote that you had? Uh, I can't remember that I've said that, but it could be, yeah. <laughs> oh, really? Okay. That's interesting. Interesting. So good. Well, um, <clears throat> okay. So we've gotten now to the point that um, you have transitioned from your professional footballer career uh, into your, your next career. Right. And so tell me a little bit about that transition or not tradition transition, uh, in, into this new role that you're in now. Yeah. In the last year of my, of my career, uh, we got a new coach. Uh, I was playing a prominent role in the, in the team before the new coach arrived, but you know, when a new coach uh, arrives, he usually have other eyes than the, mm. the, the former coach. And it was, it was quite uh, clear to me that my time was about to be over. I was also in my mid-30s. I was not getting better. Um, and I didn't play that much for the for the last year I had left of my contract at that time. But it also gave me some time to prepare uh, for what was the next chapter of my career. And I spent a lot of time preparing, networking uh, with the with the sponsors uh, in the club, uh, the commercial sites, to using uh, that network and the the name that I had that have the possibility of actually talking to sea level people that thinks you're interesting just because you're playing football, but hopefully you can you can be interesting in other ways as well if you get uh, the door opening. Uh, had many coffee meetings, uh, meeting up with a lot of people, and in the end, I also got a position in a tech company in the in the city. Uh, as a director of uh, PR and communications uh, yeah. in a company that were making uh, HR, uh, SaaS, uh, software as a service uh, uh, technology for for also many of the robotic companies in the in the city, but also for global companies and and uh, companies all over the world. So that was a quite an interesting role, and I was there for for almost three years and uh, made it all the way into. Uh, uh, CCO and CO in the end, uh, so uh, it was quite a nice, a nice journey, and also learned a lot about uh, the business side of of things. And uh, after that, I I got the possibility of uh, improving the robotics landscape uh, in in Unse from a, a public perspective, and and that was why I or that was how I, I made it to from yeah, from football into into tech and now into into robotics uh, where I am now. Yeah, that, that makes good. So, so you transition out and the people at the startup or the people that you're networking, having coffee meetings with recognize that you, well, I can see a good match there for the director of PR and communications. If you have somebody who's known and who can get meetings with people, well, then that's, that's of course a very valuable thing. Right. Um, and then of course, getting the meeting is one thing and then converting and doing something in the meeting is another right um so i could see yeah, that i, I but... needed an entrance and that was the most and that's also thing that many many footballers and athletes can actually benefit from that that you have an interest entrance to to people that actually are willing to talk to you 
Mm-hmm. And of course, they can also see the the commercial side of that. And of course, my my boss at that time could also see the the benefit of of, of me in a director and communication and a networking position. Uh, but when you have the opening, then it's just up to yourself to prove yourself. And I do not have a, a CV that are 15 years of, of relevant experience because I've been playing playing football. So I have done other stuff, but I need an opening to get in. And that was my opening to get in, in that t- at that time. Yeah. It seems, so, so you sounds like you scaled up at this. Uh, this was a startup company or, or it was a startup? Uh, yeah, we were around 17 people when I... When I started, and we were on fifty in the end, uh, so we were making it from yeah from a startup or maybe a bigger startup, uh, depending on how you define a startup, into more like a scale up, and uh, preparing for for the next step as well. Yep, that's good. <clears throat> and then I guess what would be what was the biggest challenge for you or for the organization as you were going from this transition to startup to scale up um, during that time? Uh, definitely the mindset, uh, the mindset that you have when you're only 10 people and mm. the mindset that you need to have when you're 50 people. Uh, we also have a, a pandemic uh, underway. So just the fact that you're not eating lunch together every day and you have different departments and you actually have people who no, no one actually knew everyone's names anymore. And the, mm. the, the founder was not involved in everything. And that was actually one of the biggest challenges that we have that the founder needed to let go of things because when you're 50 people, you cannot be on hand on top of everything. And uh, that, that was really, really, really challenging. And I think many, many uh, companies having that experience uh, of, of, of scaling when, when you need some kind of culture, some kind of, of uh, mindset and, and some kind of competences to, to, become a, to be a startup and to do that successfully. And you can do that. But it's complete different mindset and competence you need to to scale when you're 50, and yeah. also to to have that transition to make that transition. That was the most difficult thing I, I have experienced in 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 my career, and I don't know if they they succeeded or not. I'm not there anymore. So, but that was an actually a, a big challenge for the company when I was there. Yeah, uh, I, I I'm smiling a little bit, and I think Garrett probably is too because we're kind of at that transition point uh, at our at our company as well, right? And I'm smiling because just yesterday I had somebody tell me, "Stop meddling! You need to, <laughs> you need to stop. Uh, you need to let us do this right." So I'm, I'm trying to be better at that, right? Uh, so, but but it's really hard because you know when you if I assume that the founder that you worked with had the passion and vision for what this thing could be, um, oh, sure. and communicated that to others, but it's really hard to trust that to other people, right? It is like a child for for sure, and I totally I totally understand that. And they that that passion and uh, that energy that that you have are also important. It's not who is going to tell the founder that now it's the right time to think differently. Mm. Maybe the time is never, and who will know that? I can easily see the the paradox and also the 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 perspective from the from the founders that that is, this is really really difficult because he created the success almost by himself. Why 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 change that? Uh, but of course, it's depending also on strategy. If you want to conquer the world, uh, it's really difficult doing that from from one person as a founder and doing it all the way with only only one person doing it on your own. Um, yeah. And and putting that and uh, putting that into place and and also reflect reflect on that is is quite important. Uh, I don't know have the right answer to that, but 
but it is a challenge. And I see that also now I'm working with startups almost every day and also scale-ups and companies. I see that in robotics as well. They have the same challenges. Uh, I think companies all over the world, startups all over. You mentioned it yourself, Eric. Like this is actually important, not only for you, but also for the the employees and the people around you. That that this is not on top of your mind every day, but but that you give it a thought, uh, maybe once or twice a week. Yeah, it definitely is, and 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 you know, I have colleagues who've uh, who've had startups as well. And they range the spectrum based on their personality. I have some that um, have a startup and they want to conquer the world. They 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 want to build the big unicorn and they want to sell it to some big company and they want to then take that and build another unicorn and go and do that sort of thing, right? And then I've got other friends <clears throat> that um, their vision is different. They want what I would call more of a lifestyle company. They want to do a yeah. startup. They want to have a couple of people with them that are doing work, but they don't ever see it growing beyond a certain size because that's not really because then they would lose the ability to do what they want, right? For sure, for sure. Um, and also the people that are more happy in a startup, also the employees right. that if it's going to be more corporate, then they then they're not there anymore. Yep. So so it's uh, and I totally understand that startups has a brilliant energy uh, for for innovative people. But when you go more corporate and become more people, that kind of energy can easily disappear. And then you have the employees that are not happy anymore. Yeah, right, so, right. Yeah. I think that's, and that's the hard part of that critical transition when you're not a, a big corporation and you don't have this corporate feel and you don't have this startup feel, or maybe from one day to the next, it changes. That's a really hard transition to make and anybody so, has to decide. So hot. So I, I think, you know, for us, you know, my passion, uh, you know, I'd say my calling would be this, this safety systems uh, field. Um, and, you know, my personal passion, behind, it's extremely personal for me. So I, I, I had a, um, a friend uh, whose daughter was killed in an accident where my... Um, I was actually working for the company where she was killed and I was responsible for risk and regulatory compliance and that sort of thing with that. And so for me, it's very visceral, my, my care for this. And so my vision um, is that I want us to have the biggest impact that we can uh, on the world for helping other engineers to not have to live through that same kind of situation where they have to think about, you know, this wonderful thing that we made we put it out there and we didn't realize it that it was that it had this risk or this hazard right so so that's kind of my passion for it so i get caught between this you know how big do we need to be to be effective in that how 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 much do we have to grow and if we grow too quickly or in the wrong direction do we lose what it is that makes us different and makes us special right you make a really really good point because that is your mission you have your mission quite clear and mm-hmm. and how much can you grow? And of course, you can even maybe grow faster and earn earn more money to say it that way. But if you if you if you uh, if you're missing your vision or you're going in another direction, uh, what it's worth for you, then there's nothing worth for you. Right. There's also this personal perspective in it that that what you need needs to do a difference in the world and also personally for you. Mm-hmm. Even though you could even grow more if if you went in another direction, but that's also what makes company great, right? Yeah. That's right. That's right. It's the soul. If companies can have a soul, but it's the essence, right? The, For sure. The, the focus of it. 
So I guess let's let's um we've been talking about scaling up and starting up and 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 how to do that well and 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 so I guess part of what the city of Udense is doing is trying to foster a you know plant a garden I guess we could say in the city uh or maybe maybe a pasture since uh, we'll go back to your your goat cheese making thing right you're trying to make conditions to where the city can be a place of innovation so I guess what's the strategy behind that? What's why does why does the city want to do that? Why did they pick robotics? Why did they, you know, they could have picked cheese or something? Why why did they choose that? I think to answer that as best as possible, I think we need to a little bit of history because mm-hmm. robotics is not something that we have just taken out of the air this year. That now it has to be the thing. Uh, it comes out of the history and. It actually started out with a shipyard in Unza, which is one of the biggest workplaces in the city with more than 6,000 employees, which is a lot of people in the city this size. Uh, it closed uh, 16 years ago. And mm-hmm. the Maersk, who is like the big shipping company, Danish big shipping company, uh, was actually the, the owner of the shipyard. And they actually invested a lot of money into the university and made an institute there. And in that institute, they did robotics. And they experimented a little bit with robotics already in uh, in the in the shipyard for building ships, but but didn't really really succeed in that. But the people that were working with robotics, they went the, from the shipyard into the university in the new faculty of engineering and robotics, and they had brilliant students in that time, and they went a lot of innovation in it. And one of the the spin-offs that you're probably aware of was Universal Robots. Mm-hmm. And uh, Universal Robots and also other robotic companies uh, were created from the university. And of course, Universal Robots are the, the biggest driver at the moment, and especially the acquisition uh, of of, uh, of Universal Robots and Mobile Industrial Robots uh, seven years ago. I put a lot of money into the ecosystem as well. And now there are more than 130 robotics companies in, in, uh, in the city. Of course, with uh, mobile industrial robots and uh, universal robots as the most prominent, probably, but everything from startups to 200, 300 people companies that that are working with robotics. And of course, the city of uh, of Wunz and the municipality also put a lot of soft funding into projects that can benefit the ecosystem. We have the robotics cluster, Wunz Robotics, which is quite successful and also plays a quite important role. In, uh, in the robotics uh, ecosystem here. And we have facilities that we're trying to improve, of course, for testing purposes, a technological institute also in the city for commercializing and testing equipment. We have an airport, which is not really an airport, to be, uh, to be fair. There are no commercial flights, but to put that into a drone testing facility and putting, uh, of course, drone companies, I find that interesting, but also put soft funding uh, um, money into uh, equipment to make the testing facility as great as possible. And just recently, a lot of money is also put into the old shipyard, with, which now uh, employs more than 7,000 people. So it's quite a success. The more people work there now because of the offshore uh, offshore mills adventure that's, that Europe is, is going, or Denmark especially, are going through right now, where the university have placed a big, large structure production site uh, to to develop and uh, experiment with large-scale robotics. And and that is why it's all developed. Like the companies in the city have a great deal in why the the, the, the city has been successful, but also visionary people in mm-hmm. in uh, in the university and the local government and also from from the, the business alien perspective that the business angels have been willing to reinvest 
all the money they got from the acquisition of, of Teridyne that time into new startups and, and new scale-ups and to get the ecosystem flowing when it comes to investments. Uh, and to be there are more than, than uh, 6,000 people working in robotics in Odense at the moment with a population of 200,000 people. And of course, that's only in robotics. Uh, that's all, then goes away like my old company where, where we delivered into the robotic companies. Of course, there's so many people in Odense that are employed by the robotics. So, of course, the municipalities needs to to feed that and, and make that creative and also to to put money into uh, resources, into uh, into programs or projects that can benefit companies or startups or, or facilities or whatsoever. So that was a little bit of a, of a long story of why it's, it's successful. But I think the ambition of the city is to be the world's leading robotic city. And of course, that's a that's a great great ambition and probably also a big one. Uh, but but we're trying to, and I think we have benefit of being a, a relatively small city that we can put a lot of energy and focus into one specific thing, which is uh, in this case in this case robotics. And we have a, a municipality that thinks it's really really great because it's created a lot of tax money, a lot of workplaces, of course, into that as well. And I think that's more different or difficult for for Munich or Boston or Shanghai or other uh, robotic hubs to do that because they have other agendas as as well when it comes to uh, business growth. Yeah, I think that's, uh, you know, you're, you're absolutely right that we have to start with a history lesson and, and and understand where it's coming. And just as you're talking through that, I'm thinking of some of the places that you took to, took us to and introduced us to people and showed us things. Um, and I guess for, from my perspective, it seems like the people there, the leaders there, business leaders, government leaders, have recognized what they've had, what they have, and saw a need in the market that they could meet. And then they kind of took a risk to do that, right? So, you know, if you mentioned the airport that's there, right? So if we go really back in history, uh, you, you know, there's a bunker there from, you know, the 40s or something, right? Um, and uh, I think I remember that, uh, somebody else built that airport. Is that right? Or... <laughs> yeah, don't don't mention the war, but but yeah, the Germans no, I... uh, actually built the airport in the forties, uh, of course, for during the World War World War Two. But when they left, there was still an airport. So right, uh, right. So you have this piece of that's what I'm trying to get to. You have this piece of uh, of infrastructure that's there, that's been placed. It's well built. Uh, and then you also have Maersk who came and invested heavily in the University of Southern Denmark there, built this built this great academic institution um, and also invested in robotics for shipbuilding, right? And then you have this trained workforce that you mentioned, the 6,000 people that were there, right? And, and then you have, so I can see, <clears throat> you know, if I'm a municipal leader, I'm looking at all these things and thinking, what what can we do with what we have and where does that match up with what's going to happen in the market? Not what's happening right now, but what is going to happen. And so it's kind of that future making, future future building, right, of, of what's going to happen next. And and it seems like, um, you know, you, you, you took us around to meet, of course, the airport and the many startup companies and other and the Danish Technological Institute that's there. Um, you know, all of these things seems focused. They're, they all seem different, but they all seem kind of united together to the same purpose. And I, I would imagine that's really the municipality's emphasis and focus on doing that. Yeah, I'm, I'm usually I'm I'm using a lot of time trying to explain what we call this triple helix. 
where the 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 companies and local government and academic side uh, working together on a on a on a common common uh, goal or common purpose. And I think you see that the cluster, of course, is a great example of that. That we have the the cluster of Woods Robotics, and they are facilitating, uh, of course, different uh, kind of of projects, but also. Also, when we are doing stuff because of the size of the city, probably also that's that's probably quite that's quite the density is so 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 high that people know each other from from companies where they have changed jobs or even some some people have been working in the municipality and now working as in a robotic company. Some have been in the cluster and the university, so people know each other and the networking uh, is 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 so strong. So you collaborate really really intense. And and people know each other a lot better than probably if you were a bigger city, it would be more difficult. But there are also networks of of CEOs in the robotic companies who meet once a once a month to discuss yeah, to discuss how we can improve frames and facilities. There are different supply networks and it's not competitors, even though they are competing at some level, especially if uh, if, if we talk uh, cobot companies, for example, they're still meeting up in a sea level uh, in a Unis robotics uh, network to to discuss how we can improve the ecosystem, and I think that's quite quite unique, and it's really really nice to to improve the ecosystem that that uh, powerful people are actually willing to discuss and also help out with that. Yeah, I think that's something that surprises me too. The collaboration is different most of the time. <clears throat> my experience, limited experience working with startups, is that. Uh, They've got some secret sauce, some really special intellectual property that they're very, very guarded about. And they want to make sure that they've got that protected and that, but the, the impression that I got meeting startups, um, of course they have that, but the impression that I got meeting startups there in Udense was that, um, there was just a, it seemed like everybody had some joy if somebody made it, if that makes sense. Right. Like of course, everyone wants to make it themselves, but they also just have this community. It's glory for the community, I guess. Maybe glory is not the right word, but it's everybody benefits from it. So that was kind of my impression. I think that's very unique and different. Garrett, was that your, what do you think? Yeah, I would agree. I think it's different. I think from an American business culture perspective, um, we are more competitive even from the outset. But um, the Danes struck me as very collaborative and, um, uh, yeah, and that was refreshing, honestly, in a lot of ways. Um, as you're trying to, you know, change tides and, and build a community, you know, you do have to be more collaborative. So it was very refreshing to just see their openness and they're willing to help and, um, uh, yeah, to work together to to see these goals achieved for the city and for the cluster. Yeah, it was very interesting. And I think one last thing, I, I know we're we're getting along in our scheduled time, I guess. Um, but that's the nice thing about a podcast. It just goes as long as it goes. And then when the conversation's done, it's done, right? You know, but you mentioned also the, you know, the, the um, sale of universal robotics uh, and of Mir, and, and then that the people who benefited from that reinvested that back into the local community, right? Um it, I think that's unique for, you know, you would expect that to, like, if a company makes it big, they move to the bigger city somewhere, right? And they go, or or even another, another locality completely, right? You know, so I think that's also unique that 
people turned around and reinvested it in the place that they came from or the place that they that brought them up. And I think that's really, really a special thing as well. Yeah, that is, that is really nice. Also, you could easily uh, place your money somewhere in, in, in some place and just live the rest of your life for it. But actually reinvesting into something that where you came from and something that exciting. And also for the Universal Robots uh, case, that Teradyne could also have chosen to to take Universal Robots to Boston if, if they mm. were up to that, but actually chose to to stay and to develop the ecosystem because they could see there were an ecosystem and talent uh, and facilities that were that good that it didn't wouldn't make sense to uh, to move, and that was also quite of course it was quite important for the for the city that they that they did, but it was also a huge compliment uh, for the for the robotics yeah. ecosystem that they stayed. Yeah, I think <clears throat> definitely so. I mean, you know, some of my friends who are founders of startups, they want to do the unicorn and then they want to sell it and then they want to move to Malta or someplace like that, warm and and enjoy the rest of their days but it kind of the other perspective if you're focused on impact rather than just financials then you're going to end up continuing the work that you're passionate about regardless of the outcome of how it goes so that's very very good so so it sounds like um particular structures that have been set up involve um of course the co-location uh, either geographically or just organizationally of different types of assets that are needed. So infrastructure, people, finances, funding, um, vision of really laser focus on something uh, rather than just a general, we want to sponsor innovation in general. You say we want to sponsor innovation in supply chain robotics or something, something like that, being very f- focused and specific about it. Um, and then reinvesting when you have a success, right? So that it builds uh, mm. upon itself. I think a, mm. a lot of really good points there, um, Rasmus. So um, I think it's time for us to kind of bring the conversation to a close. So I'm going to ask you a question that I've started asking our guests. And um, again, it, you know, oh, Garrett has a question. Well, yeah, I definitely want to do that. But I thought it'd be good for the listeners um, Personally, was very impressed with the city of Odense on multiple fronts. You know, the business community, the robotics cluster, and just the city itself. And so, Rasmus, maybe uh, definitely answer Eric's question, but also maybe share some ways that people can get involved, learn more about mm. the the robotics cluster. Um, uh, the European Robotics Forum is set to be held there in March. So, you know, just a lot of cool things happening, and I and I think the city is worth people's time and attention. So, I want to give you a chance to to tell them about it. Yeah, for sure. Of course, uh, many interesting things are happening in in Uns, and we have the European Robotics Forum, where the yeah probably the intellectual elite of robotics are are gathered in Uns here in March. Uh, definitely a, a, a thing to check out. And we also have a big uh, conference R twenty four in in two thousand twenty four, where we gather, of course, try to gather the global robotics uh, companies here in the city. But that's two events that I will I will highlight a bit. And of course, there are. Uh, possibilities to reach out to, of course, the cluster uh, or to uh, to the municipality who can help you out uh, in in almost every matter, and you can find find that online as well. Cool. Yeah, very okay. good. We'll make sure to we'll make sure to link that in the uh, when this episode publishes, so that people can um, 
see exactly how to get there um, and how to participate. Okay, so now I've got the question that I want to ask you, uh, Rasmus, if we still have some time. Um, what is, we're a safety podcast, uh, but we know that everything has to do with risk calibrated decisions. There's risk and reward for what you do, right? Nothing has no risk. Um, but what would you say, or what would you publicly say, is the most dangerous thing that you've ever done? Yeah, I have a whole podcast to think about that question now because you pitched it for me earlier. <laughs> uh, well, I think the most dangerous thing that that I ever did was probably uh, actually was in the U.S. Uh, and I was quite naive. I thought like uh, maybe there are places in the U.S. that are not that safe and I didn't know that. So it's actually in Atlanta, close to you, Gareth, uh, where I tried to, to check in in a in a yeah in a in a motel where in a not really good neighborhood and i was almost uh yeah i was i was threatened with a with a gun they didn't steal my car but i was able to run away and i i feel that oh, was a uh, yeah that, that was quite dangerous and i i was uh, so shocked afterwards i checked directly into hilton after that because even though it was cheap it was maybe not that worth it to uh to stay there uh that was a really really bad experience mm. and also a really dangerous one Wow! So you got you got carjacked or attempted to got carjacked? Yeah, it was Somebody actually in the motel. So I was in the motel room, and they tried to to uh, yeah to uh, to threaten me and and steal my car. So that was uh, interesting. Mm-hmm. And there are a lot of lots of guns in the US. I I found out. Well, you yes, should come I... back to Atlanta and maybe some other neighborhoods. That, <laughs> yeah, that, that a lot would nicer. be nice. Yeah, Garrett Garrett lives in has lived in Atlanta a long time, and he's never had a gun pulled on him. So he he could probably show you the way. <laughs> or I assume you've never had a gun pulled on you, Garrett. So. Yeah, uh, I don't think so. Well, very good. Well, I think uh, I want to thank you for your time today, Rasmus, and uh, bring us to a close here. And I guess um, we just really uh, really enjoyed uh, meeting you there in Denmark and then speaking with you again, looking forward to coming back to visit, I hope. Um, and then I guess what I would say to you, um, or, or just ask you, do you have anything that you'd like to say to our Danish listeners as we close the podcast? Yeah. First of all, thanks for, for having me. It's been a, it's been a pleasure. Uh, yeah. And for my Danish, uh, uh listeners, uh, I will say something in Danish. Um, uh, Erik og Gareth, de er nogle super, super seje fyre. Hvis du er interesseret i noget med sikkerhed, så skal du helt klart række ud til dem. Ja, yeah, that was that. Okay. Yeah, I agree totally with what you said. So okay. thank you. I'm sure you do. <laughs> All right. Thank you very much. Great. And, yeah, uh, thanks a lot, we'll guys. Talk to you soon.